And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word to us, and sometimes we come to the Bible and we expect certain things. We expect the Bible to be maybe a collection of rules and regulations on how we should live life, We come to the Bible and we expect maybe uh, a few short sayings that we could, like inspirational thoughts we could put on our refrigerator or help us maybe make a decision later on in the week, some wise principles. We expect even at times for there to be some, some stories with some really good morals that we could learn from and put into practice. But more often than not, when you actually read the New Testament, what you become aware of pretty quickly is that it is a book about relationships. Especially the book of Philippians that we're reading, it is a book primarily, you're not going to understand it if you don't understand some of the relationships involved that are described in this letter. I came across the diagram that I tried to replicate of a three-way bond of relationship, and I got this from actually a, a book that's in the back, written by Gordon Fee on the book of Philippians, that you could get and follow along. But he highlights this, and it's so helpful that this be in the back of our mind, really, as we go through the book of Philippians, that there are these critical relationships, first of all, that Paul has with these people that he's writing a letter to, the the Philippians. But Paul also, well, he has a relationship with Christ. And he also recognizes that Christ has a relationship with the Philippians because they are in Christ. And holding all of that together is the gospel. And so as you think about it, and we'll come back to the diagram probably uh, well, a little bit later today and probably much throughout the series, to recognize there are some relationships that we're not going to understand Philippians if we, if we don't understand these particular relationships. And what I'd like for us to do is to learn from those relationships and to push us this morning to ask a few questions. So as Din was reading a few moments ago, I think there are some things we can listen to to Paul writing to these believers, I think there's some questions we can ask ourselves. As we read those first, let's say, verses 6 to 8, a question we might ask ourselves is, do I love like this? Like what Paul described. Do I love like that? If we, if we listen to the text first, we'll hear Paul expressing his confidence. We talked about this a little bit last week. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that the one who began a good work in you will complete it. He's giving them words of affirmation. But in verse 7, he, he changes directions a little bit, and he says, it's right for me to feel, I'm justified in feeling this way. 
And so notice the words of love that Paul is communicating here. It's right for me to, to feel this way. And feel means no less than the emotions, but it means something more. I mean, Paul has thought about this and, it, and it's gotten to the kind of internalize this. I, I feel something toward you. And it's right for me to say, I think God's going to finish a good work because I hold you in my heart. Not hard for us to relate to exactly what that means. And there's actually something mutual. They share something in common. He says, you're partakers with me of grace. Because you have been with me. So in my imprisonment, I sit in a... And he's literally imprisoned. I, as I sit imprisoned, you've, you've been with me. I, I haven't felt isolated. You, you care. And as I had to stand up and defend the gospel, the defense of the, the message of Jesus Christ, the announcement that, that God is ruler over everything, but he sent his, Jesus Christ to to come to this earth, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and to reconcile us to a Heavenly Father. You've been with me as I've had to defend that. You've been with me as I've confirmed that. You are partakers with me of grace. And I, I, I have you in my heart. He says in verse 8, he calls even God to be his witness. I, uh, God is my witness. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. I feel, I feel it on the inside and we have to realize for Paul and really throughout the New Testament when, when Paul speaks of love in this way, when he speaks of affection in this way, it's never mere sentimentality. You know, talk is cheap. We learned that, heard that even in Sunday Bible study uh, in, the, in that combined time. Talk can be cheap. I mean, it's not that hard to say that we love someone. See, the, the love in the New Testament is always love that amounts to action. It's demonstrated. Christ certainly demonstrates love toward us. And so Paul is, is expressing his, his care for the Philippians. When you love, you, you risk that love being rejected or turned away. You risk being disappointed, but you move toward others in action. It's interesting to note, I mean, Paul wants to make sure they know, they know how much he cares. He knows what, what you know. They don't have the spiritual gift of mind reading because nobody does. And so Paul knows this is important that they, they know this, how much I care for them. So we come back to the question, do I really love like this? How deeply do I love? Particularly, particularly within our church family, easy when we think of the New Testament to idealize the relationships. It'd be easy to think of like, well, maybe all the believers in Philippi were just lovable. Man, Paul loved them because they were amazing. But I, I mean, we, we, we know that's not the case, right? We know just as there are, you know, different people in the world and some more different than others, just as we know there's some people that are just a tad strange or socially awkward, just as we know there's some people that are difficult to love, we know this because we are those people, right? And surely that existed in, in Philippi. So it's significant when Paul says in verse 7 and verse 8, three times he says, I'm talking about you all. I yearn for you all. We would say in the South growing up, y'all, or youans, or however you might say it where you come from. But I, I, I yearn for you. I care for not just a select few, but, but I care for this whole group of believers meeting in Philippi. 
if Paul could care this way for the church at Philippi, if Paul could express this for the church at Thessalonica like he does in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, if he could care this way for the church in Colossae, saying, I want you to be fully mature in your faith, if he could care this way for the church in, in Rome, how much more should it be for us who live in the same zip code, live in the same county, live in the same region, to love this deeply, to care this deeply. It, it sounds wonderful. I mean, this is Jesus' commands to love. I certainly, when I hear Paul speak of like, I, I have affection for you, I care for you. I mean, who doesn't want to be loved like that? So then why is it so hard to extend love like that? in action, especially when it gets difficult, when it gets complicated. Well, I, I think there's some, some obstacles. One of that is just simple selfishness, which Paul will certainly address in this letter. Sometimes it's just easier to be selfish than to love. Easier to think that I really don't have time for this and I really don't care. There's a lot of people here, but I, I, I kind of got my own stuff to think about got my own world to live. I've got my own time to manage for. And life is pretty busy. My time is pretty well spoken for. You know, Curtis, don't get me wrong. I've got a few friends that I really do care about. And what do you know? Some of them come to Ogletown. But really, I don't have a capacity to really care much more. But what you find in the New Testament is this growing love that God's people have for each other. And I think of each of those 20 people that joined our congregation last Sunday. And what God will do, I'm confident, is expand our congregation's capacity to love and to care and have affection toward them. If our selfishness doesn't get in the way, but these, this, this kind of language by Paul blows that up. This is, it's, it's not about me. As we read one of the obstacles to loving this deeply would be we're just risk averse. I mean, we've been, we've been burned before and we're not going to be burned again. We avoid context where we might be pushed. It's easier to just kind of stay on the surface. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture do, do I see that the way of Christ is to play it safe when it comes to relationships. Sometimes it's easier to say, well, Frankly, Curtis, I mean, no one's really cared for me like that. Again, I would, I would let these verses press on you. Let Paul's desire and affection for the people of God at Philippi, let it inform our desire that we begin to care. We begin to think not like I'm going to sit here and go yet another Sunday and barely anybody's going to talk to me. I'm going to walk in and think, like this is Grand Central Station. We're showing love. We're making sure someone knows that I care. Sometimes we're just too lazy to make it a priority. Sometimes this is just the way we learn church. And maybe we got into a bad habit of church. It simply was really kind of the building and about an hour a week on Sunday, most weeks. And so if that's all that done for a long, long time, it's kind of hard to even conceptualize, okay, so you're saying church could be relationships, not just a place I attend and kind of listen to some good music and hear some teaching and go home and feel like I've tipped my hat to God, I've done what I'm supposed to. 
But Christ died for more than that, surely. He died for us to pour out our love toward each other. If we don't make it a priority, I'm not sure it will happen for whatever reason, whatever excuse we might give as to why we, why we don't, why we can't, why we used to, but we really don't have that affection. I think this is calling to something deeper and better. Surely we're called to love everybody. But just as, yes, I'm called to love everybody, but in a particular way, I'm called to, to love my spouse. I think surely you're called to love everybody. You're certainly called to love all Christians. But, but Ogletown specifically, for those that are part of this body, we are called to love each other. To have a, an affection that will move us into action. So do we love like this? Are there, are there smaller circles of, of deep care? Are there times where we, where we talk outside of Sunday? Or is there... Is there quality time, but it's like hard to really express love just with, yeah, I'll make a deposit for about three minutes a week. I mean, that, it's, it's not just going to be quality time, it's going to be quantity of time. Do we invest in that? Do we look at our calendar and say, it is such a priority that I, I express my love and my care for, for these people that God has called me to walk with? That I'll rearrange that. Over the course of six months, I'll change some things because right now I don't have space. I don't have bandwidth for that. But I want to change that because I, I, I want to be a part of a, a community that Christ died for, that loves deeply. It'd be easy to think, well, okay, so we, we all love each other, but what about the world? What about those that are outside kind of the, the community of Ogletown Baptist? And I'm reminded, and we, we heard it in the Sunday Bible study, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus, who said, by this, all, all people will know that you are my disciples. All people will know that you have my stamp on you by the love you have for each other. By the love that we have for each other. You know, I, I can walk down Main Street and it doesn't ever strike me as odd to see 20-year-olds talking to each other. But, but imagine, imagine when a 20-year-old is invested in the life of a 60-year-old or a 70-year-old and caring deeply for, for who they are and what they're going through. That says something different. What, what, what motivates that? What motivates someone that has been told for all their life, it's all about you, it's all about you. And then they live not for themselves, but for someone else. They, they care about someone else. What motivates that? Anything could, anything could motivate us to just hang out with people that are like us. What would drive us toward caring and sacrificing for those most certainly not like us? This is pushing us. We go back to the, the three-way diagram here. For God is my witness, how I, I yearn for you all with the affection. And we're reminded it is the affection of Christ Jesus. See, while Paul cares for the Philippians, what, what Paul also knows and what motivates, what drives him is that Christ cares for those Philippians, that Christ loves them. That's why he could say, I care for you with the affection that Christ Jesus has. Christ Jesus who demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were even still sinners. He died for us. Christ Jesus, who, whom it said, nothing can separate us from his love. Paul says, the, the love of Christ compels me. God loved the world in this way. He gave his 
only begotten Son. Paul knew this about the Philippians. And any love that we have has its origin in his love. And our desire is to direct his love towards someone else. When we have that same level of care, then you know what flows out of that? Keep reading. Look at verse 9. What flows out of that are prayers like these. Verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So when you care this deeply as Paul did as we begin to care this deeply we begin to be pushed, we begin to be pushed to pray things like Paul prays here. The relationships in the body of Christ have a spiritual dimension. It's not as if Paul's just saying, when I think about you, I get all warm and fuzzy inside. I just have, you know, I I drop everything for you. Because I just really, I, I really like you. I really have a lot of warm feelings toward you. He's saying, because I feel this way, I pray this way. I pray and then, and then he begins to fill out all these different ways that he prays. So I'm confronted with another question, and that is, do I pray like this? Do I pray like Paul prayed here? And can, can the, the affection of Jesus Christ spur me to pray? Did you notice what the end goal was? It, it, we find it in verse 11. Verse 11, the end goal was that they would live to the glory and praise of God. That's what all believers everywhere are meant to do, live to the praise and glory of God. But but Paul says to get there, there is this discerning love. So he says in verse 9, I'm praying that your love may abound more and more. And when you love someone, sometimes it's complicated to know how best to to show that love and to share that love. So, So you care for a child. Like, what is the wisest way to show that love? I need discernment and discretion to know how to do that. To care well. To, to, to care for a friend? How do you care best when someone's breaking your heart? Paul says, I'm praying that your love would grow more and more. It would abound more and more so that you begin to have this discernment to know how to love. And so when you love, you'll make wise decisions. You'll approve what is excellent. You'll approve the superior things. And then he says that will happen so that, in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Two words there, pure and blameless. Pure is, really has a lot to do with our relationship to God. Pure in our hearts. And blameless has a lot to do with our relationships with each other, not causing each other to stumble. Paul says, I'm praying this for you, church of Philippi. I'm praying that you would grow in love, be able to make, make decisions based on the superior things so that you could be pure before God, blameless with each other. But it's not just this shiny state of uh, wow, look at that Christian who is pure and blameless. It's also, also Paul says, that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That you'd be fruit-bearing. The point of a, a fruit tree is to produce fruit, not just to take you know, beautiful pictures up, paint wonderful portraits up. Lives that are pouring out evidence that something supernatural has happened inside. The fruit of righteousness. It's showing kindness. 
I think of how many people do we pass in this world that basically society communicates to them you are a total loser. High school communicates that. College communicates that. And you pass them. But the fruit of righteousness might show kindness where others just join in. The fruit of kindness, remembering someone's anniversary. Maybe the anniversary of something painful. You're saying, I care, and I thought about you today. The fruit of kindness, the lunch invitation that might be extended. Say, I'd love to have you join me for lunch. Can we get together sometime? That person that may not ever get that. The fruit of kindness, that text that's sent, just because. Just because you care. That opening your home for a meal, sharing your possessions. You could live on more, but you choose to live on less so that you can be more generous with what God's given you. It's not as if the, the church is just this squeaky clean and we just, all, all we're interested is just trying to impress everybody by how we look. It's like the nitty-gritty signs of kindness that flow from us. So we put all this together. Paul's prayer is that they would be pure and blameless, filled with fruit. And what is he talking about? He's talking about basically they would, go, they would be mature. I mean, he, he said earlier, I, I'm sure that God began a good work and he's going to complete it. This is, the, this is what com, a completed work looks like. And what Paul knows is this isn't going to happen overnight. There's not this magic switch that on March 13th, all of us are going to be mature. We're all going to be perfect. This is what's going to happen. We'll, we'll lift the switch and then it's all going to happen. Paul knows that's not the way it's going to go. So Paul prays that I, I pray that you would grow more and more like this so that so that next week you might be growing in this love for each other and it would it'd be filled with all sorts of discernment, that you'd be growing, that you would be more fruitful in, in your kindness and in, in the fruit of righteousness. That would be more seen a year from now than even it's seen today, that you would be growing. It's not on autopilot. It won't magically appear. But Paul says, I want you to give effort toward this. Press toward these kinds of things. And I'm praying for that. Are these our concerns. Is this the way we pray? First of all, if we don't get over the hump of selfishness, we will never pray. We won't care, so we won't pray. But how easy it is for us to, to pray and just, you know, God, God bless this person, this person, this person. Help everybody to be safe everywhere. Help everybody to be healed who's sick everywhere. And yet you find something different as Paul prays. It was interesting. Yesterday I was in a a deacon's meeting and right next to me, we had a prayer time and right next to me, one of our deacons prayed. He prayed for another member of our congregation to to be able to share the good news well with his parents. These are the kind of prayers that happen when we care that deeply. I talked to Doreen and Pat, who teach a Sunday Bible study, and they they particularly work toward the growth of those that are pretty new in their faith, and they want to see them grow. And the burden is that they might grow. I talk to international student group workers. I have many international students that visit Newark and then come to Ogletown. I've heard so many of those 
so, so many of those workers that are showing hospitality and showing kindness, this is the way they talk. I, I, our prayer is that this person would, would grow. They, they seem to be new in their faith and that they would grow more and more in their love. This is what I hear so often from godly moms and uncles and grandparents who desire to see their family member, their kid, their grandkid, their nephew, their niece. Say, I, I, want, I want my, my child to know the Lord. So these are the prayers. You know, th- this is what happens when it grows. We can just demystify all of this. What happens when, when we grow in our heart with care, our prayers change. And we don't just pray, and, and maybe this helps, we don't just pray for the present we, we look ahead to the eternal. It, it's not just that we, we, we stop praying about the present. Surely the present matters. If someone's having a, an immediate surgery or a particular difficult time with this class or this roommate, we pray about the present, but we think long-term, we think there's more, more to life than just the next five minutes. There's more to life than the next five months, so we, we have an eternal horizon. Or, or there's more to life than just externals. I can, I can pray for, you know, the, the roommate situation, but I might do better praying with you, about your heart. God might be working in that as he develops patience and develops wisdom as you're trying to figure out how to deal with these things. I might be more inclined to pray for your endurance when I take an eternal perspective. I might pray immediately that a, a surgery goes well or traveling goes well or a particular visit goes well. I might, I might pray that, but I also might extend the horizon and say, God, may you work through this, this period of suffering. May you work through when this person hears their, their numbers for cancer and they, it doesn't sound good. May you work beyond just the externals. I'd love, Lord, for you to heal them, but should you choose not to do that, I pray that you would strengthen them, fortify them as they walk through this. We pray differently for people with disabilities, different for people in a relationship, different for people that are facing death, different for people as they face a a difficult class or a difficult semester, different for people who are lonely. We pray differently for people that are our caregivers. We, We look beyond just relief of immediate suffering, although we can ask God for that. And we say, Lord, work out your plan for eternity. Paul knows as he's praying, like none of this is possible on his own. That's why he is praying. What Paul knows is what what I know, I can't like reach into the hearts and change it. You can't reach into my heart and change it so that I might, my love might grow more and more and I wouldn't be so selfish. You can't change my heart. I can't change your heart. But Paul knows what we have to know. Even as we go back to the diagram, we, we think, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Christ to work on behalf of these people I care about. This is far beyond just wishful thinking. Only God can turn this into reality. So Paul will say this in verse 11, I want you to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So don't miss this. Paul Paul cares deeply. But it's the affections of Jesus Christ that are driving this and fueling this. Paul prays intensely. Paul doesn't think he can handle this on his own. He's going to the Lord saying, Lord, you do this. Through Jesus Christ, may all this happen. 
only through Jesus. Jesus will make the difference. Are we allies in this fight against our flesh and sin? We are if we are in Jesus. Are we teammates in this race for the prize of the high calling of God? We are if we are in Jesus. Are we friends in this walk on this earth before we meet Jesus, before that day of the Lord? We are if we are in Jesus. Are we family in our life together as image bearers of God? We are if we are in Jesus. Jesus makes all the difference. I don't think we will pray if we don't really care. And I'm not sure we will care if we don't see how Jesus Christ is the thread that holds all of us together. I love it because over, over the centuries, one way Christians have to remind us that we are, we are together is a meal that's shared. And so this morning we are, we are going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper. But make no mistake, this is a meal that is centered on Jesus. It's not a religious ritual that we'll take that we'll kind of feel a little bit better about ourselves when we walk out. We all come together around Jesus, which is why I would say, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't know his saving grace, I'd love to talk with you later, but as that tray is passed, just pass that by. And let's talk later about how you can know that you are in right relationship because we are gathering together in what we call communion, but it's communion with the Lord Jesus Christ and communion with each other. I love what's going to be demonstrated in just a moment, and that is we are together in Christ. We're, we are remembering him because he said, do this in remembrance of me. But even as we do this, it's not like I'm going to give each of you a packet to take home and in your quiet time, you and God have a nice little moment together. Actually, no, we'll share it together. And we'll be reminded once again that I'm here for you and you're here for me and we are to love and we are to pray and we are to care in these ways. As we come to the table, we have an opportunity to remember the affection of Jesus Christ for us. Remember what he is doing for us. Remember of all that God promised to to be for us in Christ Jesus. As we come to the Lord's table, we have an opportunity to think about our own walk with the Lord, yes. To examine ourselves, yes, but we're challenged to think of something else, and that is, who am I taking the Lord's Supper with? What is my responsibility to them? What is my calling to them? How might I show love to them? And am I stubbornly refusing to get close to Christ's body? Am I kind of going against the picture of communion? By saying, whether formally, I'm not going to be an official part of any congregation, or informally, I just kind of like to play it on the periphery. Where am I saying something very different than, no, no, we are all together, remembering Christ's body, remembering Christ's blood. I'm going to ask the deacons to come. I'm going to ask the worship team to come as well. I'm going to ask the Lord to use this time to search our hearts. Father, thank you for this time where we can come around your table. Lord, search us now. As we prepare to remind ourselves of what you've done for us. So we think about your love and your kindness. We receive this uh, not with sorrow, but with gratitude. Because we've been loved deeply. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.